Um, in his book uh, Searching for Home, Craig Barnes describes uh, the life of his father. His father failed the family completely and in shame and disillusion had walked out on them when he was a teenager. And for the rest of his life that um, man um, spent it wandering from place to place, never seeing his family again. He died alone, Barnes tells us, in a little mobile home somewhere in the middle of Florida. He says, we buried him a few miles down the road. And he writes this, it's on the inside of your notes if you're interested. Standing beside the barren grave, watching the dry wind toy with a piece of litter along the road, I wondered if this was the identity to which I was tethered. I'd never thought about home much before that afternoon, but since then it has been my great passion. What is home? Where is mine? How do we conduct lives that amount to something more than getting a few miles on down the road to nowhere special? The need for a home, a place of rest, security, belonging, is very, very deeply rooted in us. The thought that we are tethered tied to a wandering homeless identity was abhorrent to Craig Barnes and is abhorrent to us, I think. Another example is my mother. She lost her own mother when uh, uh, she was only four years old. And from that time on, during her childhood, my mother um, had to endure a wandering existence. She was sent off to boarding school in term time. She often stayed with an uncle in the holidays. Her father was a farmer. And uh, more than once he actually sold the farm that they had because he developed uh, an unsteady wanderlust. They saw, he would sell one farm, buy another, and my mother would return home from school to a completely new place. None of those places did she call home. In fact, nowhere was home for her. And so as a young woman, she resolved to settle down. And in God's goodness, um, she lived for, the, for, for the, the last 60 years of her life in exactly the same place. It was her dream. Because she knew what it was like to be without a home. Last week, we started to, to unfold then how actually those issues are, are fundamental to all human beings. And in a sense, how all human beings are tethered to a wandering homeless existence. It all began with Adam and Eve. They were created as relational people relating to one another, to God, in a home uh, called the Garden of Eden. But when they sinned, all of that broke down. Their relationship with one another, their relationship with God, and actually their security in a home of their own. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. And ever since that, that time, 
Human beings have been, in essence, homeless, and they feel it. It wasn't long in Adam and Eve's family before one son was murdering another and receiving a a punishment that uh, um, was so distressing for him, he said, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and I cannot bear it. We saw, Grace read to us the story, uh, one early story of an attempt to try to regather people together into some sort of coherent, secure whole around this, this, this great Tower of Babel. It wasn't the first attempt. The first one was in Cain himself, the murderer, who we read was building a city. We saw that last week. But here's another one, Genesis 11. And it's not going to work. Indeed, God sees that uh, the root of all human community building is self-aggrandizement. It has nasty overtones of, 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 of violence, pride. And so he scatters them. And uh, Genesis chapter 11 ends with the people scattered, insecure, homeless in one sense, over the whole world. Now this morning, though, we need to start to engage with the, the, the next stage of that story, which we glanced at last week. God sets out to rebuild community, to to remake a home for people, to mend relationships with one another and with himself. And he does it, first of all, through this one man who is Avram or Abram in uh, chapter 12 and who becomes Abraham which means the father of many. So this morning we're going to look at at what God promises to Abraham, the first, the father of that whole project that runs through the rest of scripture of rebuilding community, rebuilding home. We're going to look at the promises that God makes to Abraham and then we're going to see how those promises get worked out in uh, the New Testament. And the big thing that we want to see is, is what shape is this community that God is rebuilding? What are its dimensions? The, the story, the promises that are made to, to Abraham, in fact, form the, the skeleton, as Peter said, the, the golden thread. Let, let, let me use the analogy of the skeleton. The skeleton, actually, of the whole of the rest of the Bible. But as with your skeleton, it's not always immediately visible, though it absolutely defines the shape of who you are. So the promises to Abraham are not always immediately visible in the Bible, but they absolutely define the shape of the rest of the Bible. So we're going to have to become anatomists a little bit. We're going to have to do a little bit of dissecting. And I hope that as we do that, you will see how glorious is the message of the Bible 
How glorious is God's plan for his church. Okay, enough preamble. Let's uh, start looking then at the promises to Abraham. We read, didn't we? The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. This is Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will be a blessing and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the promises that uh, begin to be made to Abraham and then get repeated in chapters 15, 17 and uh, 22 especially, start to, start to build, God builds a bigger and bigger picture of what he is promising Abraham. And you can, you can analyse them in this way. I hope it is uh, of some help. First of all, God promises Abraham land. I mean, that was hinted at when he says, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land. I will show you in verse 1 of chapter 12. But in uh, verse 7 of chapter 12, for instance, where we we, uh, read God saying, to your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel or, or, or Palestine. God promises land to Abraham. Then he also promises innumerable offspring. Verse 2 of chapter 12 again starts to uh, hint at that. The descendants will be a great nation. But if you uh, flick forward to chapter 15 when God speaks again to Abraham, verse 5 says this. God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the, at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Later he says, they will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And that becomes a, something that is repeated again and again and again down through scripture. God, uh, Abraham's offspring will be innumerable, beyond numbering. The third element of that uh, promise that Abraham is given, it could be described in this way, as enjoying God's presence. It, it pops up in various places in Abraham's story and it becomes a central theme later in Scripture. In chapter 12, verse 3, for, for instance, in the reading that we had, we see, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. In other words, God is going to be alongside um, the, uh, Abraham's descendants. Blessing them, blessing those who bless them, protecting him, protecting them from uh, um, uh, from their enemies. But then it gets um, elaborated uh, again in a slightly different way. In chapter 15, verse 1, God speaks to Abraham and he says, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, I, God, will protect you. I'm, I'm surrounding you and protecting you, Abraham. And I, God, am to be the, 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 the focus of your delight and pleasure and, and, and uh, hope and expectation. It's, it, I, I am I'm in a relationship with you, Abraham. I'm your shield and very great reward. And then um, 
It gets elaborated again when he speaks in chapter 17. Just uh, flick, with, uh, flick with me. Um, verses 7 and 8, God's speaking to Abraham again and he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. That is, that, that, that is what he's promised to Abraham now. I, uh, I, am your, I am your shield and your very great reward. Now he's promising to his descendants after him to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. A whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. That's the land bit. And I will be their God. And that phrase that actually gets elaborated in the rest of scripture is they will be my people and I will be their God comes up again and again and again. God's promise to Abraham and his descendants is that they will enjoy his presence, enjoy all sorts of benefits from his presence and enjoy a relationship with God. And then the fourth element of that promise as it is made to Abraham again is um, anticipated in in chapter 12 and then elaborated. Did you notice in verse 3? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples, all nations will ultimately receive blessing through Abraham. God is choosing one man, Abraham, who becomes the father of one nation, Israel, but the intention always, from the very beginning, is that all nations will be blessed. That's how, that's how, that's how the, 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 the Bible tees up this, this uh, um, um, plan of God to restore community. The rest of the story of the Old Testament, though, is how, in essence, Israel failed to do that. But the promises to Abraham were not lost. They were fulfilled in Jesus, says the Bible, but in in new and surprising ways. That's what I want us to, to, uh, uh, to examine for the rest of our time. How are these four, this fourfold promise of Abraham of land, innumerable offspring, enjoying God's presence, um, spreading out to all nations, how is that going to be fulfilled in the New Testament? Um, and the, perhaps the, uh, the, 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 a good way of uh, starting to see what is happening in the New Testament is to examine, actually, this theme of land in some detail. We won't be able to do the rest, but we'll look at this one to start to understand how the New Testament reshapes those promises to, to, to Abraham for, um, uh, in the life of Jesus and thereafter. You see, in the Old Testament, again and again and again, the, 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 uh, it, it comes up, the people have been promised the land. One of the complete surprises in the New Testament is that the theme of the land almost disappears. 
Instead, another theme bursts onto the scene in the Gospels. The kingdom of God. Jesus announces, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And whereas actually an average person who had read the Old Testament would understandably expect that he meant, aha, the restoration of the land of Palestine with Israel now dwelling in security in the land of Palestine, that is precisely not what Jesus means. What Jesus means is that now God comes to reign in a new dynamic way amongst his people, not confined to any particular land, not confined actually to any, any, any government structure. This is the dynamic rule of God in the world amongst his people, a landless kingdom in one sense. You could put it this way. First of all, the New Testament seems to spiritualise the idea of land. Okay? Um, Let me give you an example of that. In the Old Testament, to dwell in the land securely was often described as to be at rest. Especially in the book of Joshua as they go in and they take, take the land and then, then we're told repeatedly they had rest from all of their enemies. But it pops up again and again and again in the Old Testament. Now someone who's read their Old Testament then would be more than a little surprised when they hear this from the lips of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, don't look for rest in some, some political, earthly structure. No, you will find rest in me, in a relationship with me. This is what you were longing for, he says, and you come home when you come to me. See why I say it's been spiritualised. But there's another way in which it gets transformed as well. It gets globalised. The promise of of land. Uh, Jesus again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, he says, for they will inherit the earth. Now again, someone who's read their Old Testament knows, actually the Old Testament says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. But Jesus expands it. He said, actually, my people, the people of God, They're not just going to inherit that little corner of the world. They're going to inherit the whole thing. The whole globe. And that comes out in a number of places in in the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 4 verse 13, if you're taking notes. um, 
The Apostle Paul um, says, Abraham, notice, there's the bit where the skeleton comes to the surface. Abraham received the promise that he would be heir to the world. So, the promise of land is spiritualized, it is globalized, and then there's a horrible word, I can't think of another one. Please, someone give me another one at the end and I'll use it on all future occasions. <laughs> Eschatologized. Um, uh, eschatology is the study of the things that will happen at the end of time. You know the joke about the theology student who said to his tutor, what, what is eschatology? And the, student, uh, and the tutor replies, don't worry about it, it's not the end of the world. Um, <laughs> that's eschatology, okay? Um, the, the New Testament, you see, makes it, makes it plain that we are waiting for a future day, a day when God will re- recreate the whole of his universe, a new heaven and a new earth, and bring all of his people from every tribe and, uh, and nation together, resurrected now gloriously in his presence, in that new creation. And we have to wait for that. Right now, we don't. We are heirs, but we haven't inherited. The meek will inherit the earth, but they have to wait for it. The uh, New Testament hope of land, you see, is globalised, but delayed. So that for now we live actually like Abraham lived, as someone who was in the land, but he never owned more than a tiny little scrap of it. We own none. And we just have to live, as the New Testament describes, as strangers and aliens in the world. Heirs who will inherit, but it awaits the last day. Now, I've I've laid that out uh, for you. To try to, to try to show you in, in, in that aspect how actually those, those promises to Abraham get transformed. No longer a bit of the earth on which we build a nation state. No, it's a spiritual reality of coming to Jesus. It is a global reality. We will inherit the earth. It is a delayed, maybe that's what I should put it, put it. it is a good delayed reality. It awaits the end of time. But here's, for, for our purposes this morning, here's the central thing. It does have a manifestation now. Here. That reality is manifested today in God's church. To take one example that I hope you'll look at in your um, uh, home groups during the week and uh, turn it up because we, we'll try and uh, dwell on it a bit rather than jump around too much for the rest of our time. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's on page 1218 in the church Bibles. 1, one Peter um, sets out this picture that I've given you very, very clearly. It begins in chapter 1, 
verse 1, by addressing the Christians as strangers in the world scattered. Okay? We have to live like all human beings lived up until the time of Abraham, scattered and homeless, and indeed, in one sense, like Abraham himself did, given promises but not yet seeing seeing the fulfilment of it. We are still scattered in the world. We have not come home to the new creation yet. So that makes it all the more surprising what he says about our present situation in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of those titles that he, that he, um, uh, that he, that he lists there belonged once to Israel. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God. But now, he says, and it is now, it is not just in the future, now they belong to the church. You are those things now, he says. You are that chosen people, that, 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 that dignified royal priesthood, that holy nation, that people belonging to God. Unpicking your home groups, what that, what that means is extraordinary. Local churches are now the manifestation of the promises to Abraham on the earth. Go up and down the world, you won't find anywhere else where that is being manifested, but the Bible says they are manifested in local churches. As a first toast of one day when, in fact, there will be nothing but a glorious gathering of God's people, all in perfect harmony. Now, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes clarifying um, a couple of issues in, um, um, that, that come up in this to, to try to emphasise the dignity that the New Testament gives to the local church. Um, one, one of this is, is, is uh, to notice how the New Testament uses the word church. It's actually rather different from the way that we use it in, in one or two respects. We, we often use the word church to describe some larger reality in, uh, in the world. We use the term the Church of England or the, the, the Baptist Church in England or, or whatever. But actually, the New Testament never uses the word church like that. It uses the word church in, in two ways. One way is that it uses it to describe, in fact, that the, the total gathering of all believers in all times and all places. From God's perspective, God looks over the whole of history and the whole of his world and he sees a church. That is, a, an innumerable throng of people from every tribe and nation who have come into a relationship with him and who are destined to inherit the new heaven and the new earth, who are inheriting the promises to Abraham. And they are the church. 
the global people of God. Every single one of them. And then there is only one other way that the New Testament uses the word church. None of those, no, 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 the sort of regional or national or any, any um, um, gatherings is ever called church. It's just a local gathering of believers. People who meet together regularly. Now, doesn't that enormously heighten the dignity of what happens Sunday by Sunday here and up and down the country and other places? It may well be entirely appropriate for individual churches to gather together and to have some sort of organisation that links them together and provides, um, provides some support or, or, or whatever. But those, those sort of connections that there are in different denominations and, and so on, those are not where the promises to Abraham are being revealed and enjoyed that happens here. As people to gather together in a local group of believers. Or uh, another um, clarification that may, um, uh, may help as well to see what, what the New Testament says. Um, some, something about parachurch uh, organisations, that is Christian organisations that are set up often to fulfil a specific purpose, often evangelism or discipleship of, of specific groups. And I, I mention that in particular because um, Oxford being what it is, we have a very significant number of parachurch, national and international parachurch organisations in Oxford and a very significant number of us here who either do work or have worked for uh, a parachurch uh, organisation. So it's worth us getting, getting, in our, getting some of these things clearly in our minds to understand it. The New Testament makes it plain that parachurch organisations are a good thing. A really good thing. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he set out to evangelise um, the world as he knew it, he gathered together a little band of disciples who were committed to that mission together and off they went and uh, saw enormous fruit around the Mediterranean world. So um, um, parachurch organisations are, are, uh, are, are absolutely seen as a good thing in the New Testament. But they are not the centrepiece of God's plan. And if they become so, all sorts of things go wrong. When you read the New Testament, for instance, those apostolic bands of disciples were commissioned by a local church. They maintained a measure of accountability back to a local church, in Paul's case, Antioch. Their task as well was not just to evangelise the masses, but to plant churches because as we saw last week, there is no such thing as a disciple who is not linked in and rooted in with a local church. So they were church planting organisations. And uh, interestingly, Apostle Paul formed and dissolved his little bands of disciples at will. 
But the New Testament is very plain. If a church disappears, a death has occurred. So it is not an exaggeration to say, as, as, as Bill Hybels um, loves to put it, the local church is the hope of the world. Okay, so back to Abraham. Um, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in the local church. That's what the, that's what the New Testament says. That is the dignity of what is happening here. That, that means for you, if you're, if you're a, a Christian, for instance, that if you are not linked in to a local church in a way that makes you identify that local church as my home, then you have not yet discovered what the New Testament says about church. It, it is not good enough to just go and be fed by a bit of stimulating teaching or, or, or whatever. Church is called the body of Christ. It is the place where everyone, every believer is to be nurtured and encouraged and supported and challenged and made more into the likeness of Christ. Vitally important that you understand that. That uh, analysis of how the land um, uh, gets um, fulfilled, the promise of land gets fulfilled, could be um, expanded for all the other elements. So just be, let me just touch on them very briefly as we finish because they are all vitally important and they all merit being meditated on um, uh, over the week. The promise of innumerable offspring. Of course, for the, for the global universal church, that is a done deal as far as God is concerned. But every local church is to be a group of people who are reaching out to those around and welcoming them in. Thank, you, thank, thank the Lord that that is happening amongst us. And uh, no church can be a church that is not actually seeking for the Lord to add to our numbers daily. That is why we put a big emphasis on that as well as other elements of our community because we are not an inward-looking community, we are an, a community bound together and looking out to the world. Because we're part of a story which results in innumerable offspring gathering around the throne of grace. The church is the place where, supremely, Christians enjoy God's presence. It is great that God is with you when you kneel and pray in the morning every morning, but the New Testament makes it very plain that there is a special sense in which God is here when his people are gathered together in his name, when the gospel is proclaimed. The business that people do with God in this place is the centrepiece of what God is doing in his world. 
And of course, it is for all nations, all peoples. Isn't it extraordinary privilege that in this city in particular, we have an opportunity as a local church to be linked into who knows how many countries around the world. That is a a richer privilege we have here than in many other places. Let's grasp it with all our might because this is the centre of God's purposes for his people. That people from all sorts of backgrounds should be gathered into one people of God. Craig Barnes's uh, father never did find a home. My mother found a home and established a family and so on, which was an enormous blessing to her, but she never found a home in a local church. But you, you have an extraordinary privilege of being part of the only concrete manifestation there is of God's promise to Abraham, which he will not break. Amazingly, it's in being part of a local church like this. As we grasp that, As we live it, we discover for ourselves what it really means to have a home.